Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So I am starting a brand new series today called The Blessed Lifestyle. And let me begin by saying this. You know, those of us that come into the church on Sunday morning, we have discovered, I think, one of life's greatest mysteries and one of life's greatest gifts. And it's the gift of salvation. And it's this personal relationship with a living God and a Savior. And access to heaven where we have a loving Father in heaven who uh, sends heaven's resources to meet earth's needs. From which we get peace and joy and love and when we're in troubles and trials and tribulations in life, he sends the answer and delivers us out of them all. And then, of course, the greatest part of that gift is when we leave this earth, we get to go and be with him for an eternity in paradise. I mean, this is pretty good stuff that we know. And yet, all those people on the outside of this building, many that you know, don't know any of this. They have no understanding of this whatsoever because they live in a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture that has long since left behind any vestiges of Christianity. I mean, the symbols of Christianity are gone. Prayer in school is gone. Bible reading is gone. I mean, we still have Christmas and Easter, but we replace Jesus with Santa and the Easter bunny. And so what they don't have is they don't have any real understanding of heaven or hell or the destructive force of sin. And they certainly don't think that they are in need of a savior. So we have our work cut out for us. However, there is one really key thing in all of this is that even though they're not part of this, even though they don't know this big mystery that you know, there is still within them a longing and a desire and a certain spirituality. Have you noticed that? That people are still very spiritual. They say, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. And that is because God has put within every human being a God-shaped void that only he can fill. And if you're wondering if that's in Scripture, it is. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. And it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity in their hearts. See, God has put this longing for eternity in their hearts. But here's, here's the challenge. Like, because of this culture they're in, if, if they don't come into this building, which they're probably not, I mean, most people, I mean, you're here and our friends come, but most people aren't going to come into a building like this. Not today. That's not what people do. They don't go to church. The churches become so distant from them. To them, it's six days invisible, one day incomprehensible, Right? I mean, the days of Billy Graham going from city to city and having tens of thousands of people coming into a stadium and then flooding forward to give their hearts to Christ, that's gone. There's no Billy Graham. He's, he's dead, and there's no one that has replaced him. And nobody's going around knocking on doors and handing out tracts and handing out Bibles anymore, are they? And you're just so glad you're not being asked to do that. And guess what? Everybody at the door is glad you're not coming. So at least we can all agree on that. But here's the question. We're going to have to find a new way, because of these things I just explained to you, we're going to have to find a new way to be able to communicate to people this great gift of the gospel that we've discovered. Or maybe, maybe what we need to discover or rediscover is the old way. 
And what we're talking about in this series, the blessed lifestyle, is actually the old way. It's the way Jesus used, and it's, and it's co- so crazy, because it's not like anything we've ever done. The thing that Jesus did was, was so natural, and so easy, and so uh, accessible, and anybody could have done it. And he just told his disciples, as you go, do it. And he taught them these principles, and, and, and we call it today, it's, it's taken on this acrostic of bless, B-L-E-S-S. We didn't invent it, but people have pointed out that really the way Jesus did it, the Jesus way, is this way. And this bless stands for this. The B stands for begin with prayer. The L stands for listen with care. The E stands for eat together. The S stands for serve in love. And the other, the last S, stands for share your story. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take you on a journey in the next few weeks. And we're going to do it in the church and we're going to do it in small groups. And we're going to take you forward and we're going to take this from being a, you know, a, a, a campaign or a program, which it's not. And we want to create a lifestyle. Because what bless is, is bless is not a gimmick, and bless is not a slogan, and it's not a motto, and it's not a mantra, and it's not some evangelistic program to buttonhole people for Jesus. It needs to become part of our culture, and it needs to become part of our lifestyle, and every single person can do it. It is so natural and so actually simple that it doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, everybody is capable of doing this. Now, if you have a good memory, some of you are going to remember this, that I preached on this just a few months ago. Anybody remember that? I pre- Most of you don't remember that. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I should not tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. This is a secret that all pastors know. The lingering, enduring, transformational effect of a sermon after it's preached lasts approximately 12 seconds. <laughs> Normally, after people leave the door, that's about how long they remember it. And if you think I'm like I said, I shouldn't have told you this, but it's kind of true. I have literally had people come up to me at the door as they're heading out into the parking lot, and they've said to me, Pastor Mark, that was a great message. To which I'll say, well, what part really spoke to you? And they say, well, I don't remember any of the specifics, really. I just know it was really good. And then they go out the door, and I think to myself, in a very self-satisfied way, another life changed. <laughs> You know, I'm realistic about this. I know it goes on. And so we know we're going to have to take a little time on this. Uh, it's like the story of this pastor. He was preaching this sermon one day. He was all finished. And he was at the back of the church. And like he customarily did, he was shaking hands and people were going by. And, and this little 10-year-old boy goes up to him and shakes his hand. But he deposits something in his palm. And he opens his palm and there's a quarter sitting in his palm. And he turns to the little boy and he says, what's this about? He says, I'm just trying to do my part because my daddy says you're the poorest preacher he ever heard. <laughs> so anyway, so this part of the story is true. It's super funny. So I was in Regina, Saskatchewan, and I was going there once a year, and I, and I was preaching there, and I told that joke. I told that story. And so then at the end of the, the service, I was shaking hands at the back of the room, and no joke, a 10-year-old kid comes and slips me 25 cents. <laughs> And I laughed and I pointed at him. I said, you, smarty. And we had a good laugh about it. A year later, I was back. He's now 11 years old. And I don't recognize him. And he comes up to me. I wasn't talking. I never mentioned it this time. And he comes up to me and he slips me a quarter again. And I looked and I laughed. I said, oh, I remember you from last year. So that was when he was 11. A year later, I'm back. I've forgotten again. He slips me another quarter. A year later. He's 13. He slips me another quarter. 
when he was 14. This is the fifth time in a row. He's 14, and I see him coming. He's older, he's bigger, but I know who this little rascal is. And he comes up to me with this smile on his face, and he slaps my palm like this. And I said, before I opened my palm, I said, I know who you are, and I know what's in my hand. He says, do you really? I open my hand, and there's a loony in my hand. (laughs) And I said to him, what's this? He says, what can I tell you? You're getting better. So that's why we're not just doing one message. We're doing a series, and and we're going to try to move us along as a church and develop this blessed lifestyle. So today we're going to begin, and the first part of this is begin with prayer. Now, I'm going to read you a verse here. I want you to listen carefully. It's the words of of Paul the Apostle to Timothy. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says this. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and those who are in authority, that they may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I have a question for you. When Paul begins with these words, first of all, what do you think he's driving at? When he says, first of all, what do you think he's trying to say? Really? Nobody, nobody can get this? He said, first of all. If someone says, first of all, what does that mean? It means first of all. I'm glad you can come to church and I can explain the scriptures to you like this in this deep and profound way. I know you thought it was a trick question. If he says, first of all, he means first of all. This is the first thing you need to do. And he says, you need to pray for all men that they will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I want you to think about Jesus for a moment. What did he do? We look at Jesus' life. We look at his ministry. He began every morning and ended every day with the prayers for souls. That's what he did. He cried out day and night. And we see him going from place of prayer to place of prayer. We find him going into the city of Jerusalem. He literally wept over the city of Jerusalem. And he cried for their souls. Oh God, that you would touch these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He cried out for these people. And yet when you look at Jesus, I want you to think about this. We know he was a man of prayer. We know that that was sort of rudimentary to what he did. But one of the things he didn't do is you don't find him in scripture ever chasing after people with the gospel. I mean, think about it. There's only one possible example that you, I can think of. Maybe you can think of another one. And that was the madman of Gadara. That he actually traveled across the Sea of Galilee to go to see this demon-possessed man. It's like you going to see your brother-in-law. Same sort of idea. And, and he, to go see this demon-possessed man. It's the only time I can think of where he actually went after and targeted. Every other time, they came to him. Nicodemus came to him by night. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, climbed up the tree so he could see him. Mary Magdalene came to him. The rich young ruler came to him. The young lawyer came to him. The story goes on and on and on that Jesus prayed for the souls of people and the people came to him. And Jesus explained it. This is something most of us don't know. And Jesus explained it in John chapter 6, verse 44. And he says, no one comes unto me except the Father who sent me draws them. Did you catch that? Nobody comes to Christ 
on their own, but only those who the Father, by His Spirit, has drawn. And that's why we don't have to be chasing after people. We don't have to be being these radical, crazy, uh, objectionable evangelists because He will draw them. If we will begin to pray, then He will draw them to Himself. So I'm going to give you two things, actually. There's two points I want to make in this. And I'm going to throw them up on the screen. These are the two compelling reasons why you need to begin with prayer. And number one, people are truly and hopelessly lost. And number two, and I just mentioned it, no one ever comes to Christ on their own. So let's talk about this first one. That people are truly and hopelessly lost. You know, one of the things I love is when people give their testimony about, uh, about being, becoming Christians. And you, you've all heard them. You've told your testimony like this. Usually they go about 20 minutes of telling all the horrible and sordid details of their sinful life. And then in the last minute they say, and then I found Jesus. And I always smile at the, at the, at the punchline. And then I found Jesus. And I think to myself, you know what? Jesus wasn't lost, buddy. You were. You didn't find him. <laughs> he, he, he was not the one that was lost. And I think one of the things that we have really missed, and I'm going to really be driving this point home today, is I think we have missed the fact that people are totally and and genuinely lost in this world. And I think what is missing is this, is I think we are, are, are lacking this sense of urgency about people's souls. And, you know, there was days gone by when that sense of urgency was something that the church understood. And it's kind of why the, they did the hellfire and brimstone preaching. And, uh, you know, nobody really likes that stuff anymore. But, uh, you know, that was the reason they wanted to remind people that they were really lost. And if, if people can figure that out, then maybe they'll come to Christ. But we look at the world today, nobody thinks they're lost. Nobody thinks they're lost. In Canada, these are Canadian statistics. 52 of Canadians still believe in heaven, which is kind of cool. 32% of them only believe in hell. But this is my favorite statistic. Only 1% of people actually think they're going to hell. <laughs> you know what that means? Nobody thinks they're going to hell. Maybe if I'm an axe murderer, I think maybe I'm going to hell. Everybody else is going to make it, but the axe murderer, maybe not. The rest of us are good. You know, something wrong with that picture. And I think what we find as you go into history, you found that there were the times when the Spirit of God moved powerfully was people carried this sense of the lostness of people that they remembered that their eternity was at risk. And I, I don't know if you know what the most famous sermon in history is. If, if you were to name Sermon on the Mount, you'd be right. But other than Jesus, the most famous sermon in history was, was preached in 1741 by a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards to his church in Urnfield, Connecticut. And uh, what happened after he preached his message was the entire congregation fell on their floor and they cried and they wailed and they repented for hours and multitudes of people got saved and thus begun the second great awakening in the United States. And it swept for, for, for decades, actually, and uh, countless tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ. And it all began with one sermon, and the sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you have ever heard of this? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. If I was to preach this message today, you would be screaming too and running from this place and saying, what has got into that guy? And I'm going to just give you a little sample, a little quote of this. And uh, here it is. I'm going to throw up on the screen. 
This, this, and this isn't even the hard part. It gets worse than this. He says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as a, worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. Wow, that's kind of tough preaching. <laughs> I mean, what's this with this guy? And you know what? Nobody preaches like that, thank God. I don't preach like that, thank God. I tell jokes and poems and stories. That's what I do. And, you know, fortunately a few people come around. But, the, but there is this sense, there is this sense of urgency that they've had in times past that is lost. And now, preachers never talk about hell. Have you noticed that? They almost never talk about hell. And they never talk about damnation. And they say, well, it makes people uncomfortable. Well, of course, it's hell. It's going to make people uncomfortable. Of course, it's going to make them a little uncomfortable. And I don't know if you know this, but the, the postmodern theologians are, are coming up with a new version of hell. And they, it's actually called an annihilationism. I don't know how many of you have heard of this. And annihilationism is this. It's the belief that, that hell is not a literal place. And that, that hell is actually a condition that when, you, when, when the judgment finally happens, uh, the, the, fa- the lake of fire is just going to consume and extinguish all the souls of the lost. And so they're just going to no longer exist any longer. Do you know that's the same theology as atheism? That only that happens when you die. You, you're extinguished. You no longer exist. And it is not biblical. And yet people like that idea. They go, oh, well, that's nice. So they don't get to go to heaven, but at least they don't have to suffer. Well, the problem with that is it's not in the Bible. Go read Luke chapter 16, where Jesus is describing Hades, which was the hell of his day. He describes Hades, and he talks about the man who is down in the pit of Hades being tormented by the flames. That doesn't sound like he has been extinguished, Right? He's down there suffering. And then it says about the the final judgment in the lake of fire, it says where they are tormented day and night forever and ever. That sounds like a really bad place. And I know what what the thought is that people have. and, And I understand it. People say, well, what kind of good God would send people to some, that kind of an eternity? Well, I got news for you that most people don't believe, but it's true. God doesn't send people to hell. They send themselves there. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because first of all, the scripture says this, that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That is his will. We know what God's will is. Nobody. And not only that, you go, Matthew chapter 25, I think it's verse 41. It says this, and the everlasting fire, which God prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was never prepared for mankind. It was never intended for man to go to hell. People only go there because they determine in their hearts to follow the devil instead of God. And I know this is, is, you know, sort of tough stuff to hear about. But what it should do is it should start stirring with us a sense of the burden for the loss. Now, you've probably heard me talk about this before, but I don't care. I'm going to talk about it again. And I'm I'm a big fan of an an old-time preacher by the name of Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody. And there's a family connection with us that, again, I've probably told you before, because my grandfather was named after Dwight L. Moody. He was named after this, this preacher. His name was Harley Moody Hughes. And what had happened was Dwight L. Moody was one of the most effective preachers of all time, probably around the turn of the last century. And my great-grandmother, 
brought them into Manitoba, brought them into Brandon, Manitoba, actually. She underwrote it, cost her $2,000, which was a princely sum in 1897, that was the year. And she brought Dwight L. Moody into, into Brandon, and he preached there, and hundreds of people got saved. And it was after that, that in honor of that, she named my father, Harley, or grandfather, Harley Moody Hughes. So that's a family connection. But there was something really unique about this man as to why he was so effective. And there's a story where he was at, I don't know if it was a pastor's conference or a prayer meeting or what it was, and a young preacher, a young man came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, could you share with me the secret to success? What has made you so effective in sharing the gospel? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. He took him to the window, and they were on a second story. And he said, look out the window, and he says, what do you see? And the young man said, I see people. He says, no, 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 look carefully, more carefully. So he says, well, I see men and women, and I see children. He says, no, no, you're not looking careful enough. Look harder. What do you see? He says, well, I see a banker, and I see a delivery guy, and I see, I see a milkman, and I see a mother with a baby in a, in a carriage. And he says, no, no. He says, here's your problem. When you look out the window, you see people. When I look out the window... I see people who are lost and going to a godless eternity because they have no hope in this world because they have not found Christ. You see, he was burdened with this sense of the lostness of people that we have forgotten all about. And Dwight L. Moody, he used to always tell preachers this. He said, you should never talk about heaven without tears in your eyes. I like it actually the way a contemporary of his was Charles Spurgeon. I like the way he said it better. He said to his young preachers, he said, when you talk about heaven, your face should light up like the sun itself. And when you talk about hell, well, your regular face will probably just do just fine. (laughs) So I want to tell you a little story about this because I I think we have a long way to go to restore and recover the burden for the loss. So a few years back, uh, Kathy had taken up kayaking and then she talked me into buying a kayak so now we, I was a kayaker uh, whether I liked it or not and, uh, and so she wanted to go on, the, on the, these trips so we were doing these trips and so I had this idea I really, if we were going to go kayaking I wanted to go to somewhere called the Sable Islands now the Sable Islands are these uh, it, it's hard to believe they even exist they're the, the barrier islands on the south end of Lake of the Woods there's this huge bay. I'll show you a map of it, actually. This is the south end of Lake of the Woods. That's called Big Traverse Bay. It's uh, about, uh, I don't know what, about 45, 50 miles from Kenora by water. And you can get there by water. Uh, but you have to go across Big Traverse Bay there. Big Traverse Bay is 35 miles across, something like that. And those winds come across, and it's created these barrier islands. And so show the next picture for a moment. And so the next picture, that's what it looks like. It looks like something you'd find in Florida, but it's right there in, in northwestern Ontario. And so I always wanted to go there, but either take a very long boat ride there or go back to the Google map. Or if you look at that map, you can see Nestor Falls over there. You can see the highway over there. It's quite a distance. And so I was trying to figure out how I was going to get there. And I looked on the maps. I couldn't see a road that went directly there. There was ro- roads that went, but it was a long way around. And so I got the Google map, this map here, and I zoomed in, and I found a road that went through the bush. And I said, well, Kathy, I got this shortcut to the Sable Islands. And so, so you know, I'm a guy, you know, we're always thinking ahead. And so, so anyway, so we packed up on that particular day, and I put the, the uh, kayaks on the roof, and we had our life jackets and our swimsuits and our 
towels and away we drove and it took forever to get there and you have to go down this long highway and finally I found the turnoff that was on the Google Maps and we went and so we started driving and I thought well this is a pretty good road so far so good and I thought this is like all brand new gravel I thought if this road is like this all the way to the Sable Islands this can be a fantastic day and so we probably still had another hour and a half to, to go from the highway to the to the shore and uh, so anyway, what happened was we're driving along and all of a sudden there's this big, huge gate and there's these trucks there and there's these guys standing at the gate. And there was three guys and they were, you know, they were in like vests, you know, with big colored vests with X's on them. And, and they're, they're standing there on a, on a smoke break and uh, they're just watching us roll up. And there we are. We got our, our did I mention we had kayaks on the roof and, and uh, we're heading to the beach, right? And uh, they're just watching us like this. And so I slowed down and rolled down my window. And they just watched me like this. And so then I just slowed down and nobody said anything. And I, so I went through the gates and kept on driving. And I thought, well, I don't know what their deal was. But they don't seem to mind me being on this road. I don't know what this road's all about. So, so then, so then we, we, we drive through. And, and I thought, this is a great road. This like, is brand new gravel on this road. And I think if this is what the road's like all the way there, we're, we're home free. So we drove for about, about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And all of a sudden we ran around this bend and we went down this hill and we came out in the bottom of the biggest gravel pit I've ever seen in my whole life. And we're li- like, we literally went down this hill and we came out in this huge gravel pit. It looked like a crater that was created by a meteorite. It was all gravel. It went up 200 feet on either side. And we were right down smack in the bottom of this pit. And I got out of the, out of the car and there was a big machine in the distance dumping gravel into a pile. And, and uh, there was nobody around. And I, and I stood there and I said, I'm in the bottom of a pit. And so Kathy said, where's the rope? And I said, well, I don't see any other road. This feels like the end of the road. So then I drove around the gravel pit, went around twice, looking, looking for a way out. There was no way out except for the way that I came in. So we went back on the road, and we drove back down the road to where the gate was. And uh, my friends, I'll call them that, were still standing there, still having a little smoke break. And uh, I mean, this smoke break's been going like 40 minutes so far. I'm not, not that I'm counting. But anyway, so, so they're having this little smoke break, and I slow down, and I said, uh, so we're trying to get to the shores of Lake of the Woods, particularly to the Sable Islands, and on the Google map, it shows this road goes right straight through. And the guy says, this road goes to a gravel pit. <laughs> and I said, there's no other road here? He says, no, just a gravel pit. And so then I said to him, well, let me ask you a question. So, like, when you saw two people rolling up here in their beachwear with their life jackets and their towels and, and, and kayaks on their roof, uh, what exactly did you think we were doing? And he says, <laughs> we didn't know what you were doing, but we knew you were going to the gravel pit. I said, I drove, I drove away, and we wasted 45 minutes and a bunch of precious gas, because there's no gas stations in the bush, and uh, I'm ticked at them, and I'm complaining. We're driving along, and I said, what's wrong with those guys? They knew perfectly well we were going to the pit, and they didn't stop us. They could see we're trying to get to the beach, and we end up in the pit. 
And then all of a sudden, and I hope you've caught this, I hope the penny has dropped, and all of a sudden it dawned to me, this is exactly what we're like. This benign indifference that people think they're on their way to paradise in the life, and they're on the road to the bottom of the pit, and we do nothing but stand back and watch. I wonder where they're going. (laughs) And that kind of indifference is what's killing us. In the church, because this burden for the loss would stir us to prayer. So that's the first thing, that people are truly and desperately lost. The second thing is this, is that no one comes to Christ on their own. Now, I already said, said that, but we, we're going to find out in a, in a, why in a moment. And, and so Jesus, Jesus said this, and I'll say it again, that no one comes to me unless he who sent me draws him. So we know that the work of the Holy Spirit is sort of key in this. And so I have a verse I want to read you about this, particularly important. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, it says this. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And so here's the thing that Paul explains to us. That if the gospel is veiled, and we know it's veiled. People don't get it. They don't understand it. They haven't heard it. And if they have heard it, they still don't get it. And it's like they're blinded. And the reason is, is he says they are blinded. That the God of this world has blinded them. And therefore, they are, the gospel is veiled to them. So it's not like God has, has veiled their eyes. The God of this world, the devil, Satan, has blinded people's eyes. That's why they don't see what you see. And see, a lot of times, uh, we don't have a good attitude towards these people because we just think they're evil people or they're stupid people or they're you know, wicked people. And we judge them and we criticize them and sometimes we abhor them. And we're not compassionate upon them. And Jesus was compassionate upon them because he understood that they were blind. He called them the blind leading the blind. And I want to ask you a question. This is a simple, simple illustration, but I think it'll help us here. So, so how many of you ever got a, a McDonald's ice cream? Do you like the McDonald's ice cream? I love these things. But they're not ice cream. It doesn't anywhere on the menu say ice cream. It says cone. It's a chemical cone is what it is. So, so it's just chemicals. It's delicious. And so you go by this chemical cone and you, you, you're walking out of the door with your chemical cone. It's a beautiful sunny day. You can't wait to have that first lick. And this guy bumps into you and your chemical cone falls to the ground and immediately disintegrates, right? Because it's not ice cream, it's chemicals. And it reacts with the concrete and it disappears. Now, no, so, so normally you'd be mad. You'd turn, you'd turn around, you'd be mad at this. What's wrong with you? Don't you, don't you watch where you're going or whatever? But what would happen if you turned around and you were going to be mad at this guy and you turned around and you find he had a white cane and he was blind? Would your attitude change? Yeah, of course, you're, you know, you're still unhappy about the cone, but you're not mad at him because he's blind. And you see, this is the reality of what we need to get a revelation of, that people are not horrible, wicked, terrible people. They're just blind. And the God of this world has blinded them. And this Paul who's telling this, who's writing this, knows exactly what he's talking about because there's a certain autobiographical sense of what he is saying because he, we know his story. Do you remember his story? I mean, before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. And he was killing Christians and persecuting the church. And he did it without guilt or compunction, right? 
In fact, go read the story. He was proud of it. He was proud of himself for doing this. And then what happened was he was on the road to Damascus one day. And the, the Lord appeared to him and a bright shining light came. And, and he, and he came, went, went off his horse and it was as if he was blinded. And it says they, they took him because he, he couldn't see. And they walked him to Damascus. And it says they prayed for him. And then it says this, don't miss it. It says something like, something like scales fell from his eyes and he saw clearly, rose up and was baptized. That's what happened He's in, in his conversion experience. The scales fell from his eyes. And that's why he writes this and he says if the gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who the God of this age has blinded their eyes. And it was the power of prayer that caused the scales to fall off so that he could see clearly. And I know some of you think, you know, this story's not fair. It's not fair because it looks to me like nobody preached the gospel to Paul, but that God sovereignly showed up and saved him out of nowhere. It's not fair. (laughs) Let me remind you something. Your story isn't fair either. God sovereignly showed up and saved you. You say, what do you mean? So-and-so led me to Christ. No, no. No one comes to the Father, to me, except the Father draw them. And so your story is the same as his. And the, 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 your eyes were blinded, but those scales fell. And let, let me ask you this question. How many of you discovered after you got saved, after you got, found Christ, that someone had been praying for it? Anybody have an experience like that? You didn't know they were praying for a bunch of people putting their hands up in the room. Not everybody remembers their story, but chances are there was a grandmother, an aunt, or a mother, or somebody that was praying for you. And so we look at Paul, and we look at that story, and we say, I don't know, it doesn't seem fair. God intervened without any human activity whatsoever. Or is that true? Was it possible someone was praying for Paul? And I pointed this out to you before. You can find exactly who it was. It's in Romans chapter 16 where he says this. He says, greet my cousins Andronicus and Juni who were in Christ before I was. Let me ask you a question. If you had a cousin like Paul and he was killing people like me and persecuting people like me, would you be praying for him? Yeah, you're not right. You'd be praying for him. So we know there were people praying for Paul. And see, that's how prayer works. Now, here's the big question. Uh, how do we pray? How do we pray, for, how do we pray for these scales to fall off? And Paul actually gave us that too. And I'm going to share it with you. And I recommend that you really learn and embody this prayer. And if you're teaching other people and you're thinking, you know, if people say, how do I pray for the lost? How do I begin with prayer? I don't even know where to start. I'm telling you, just point them to this verse. Somehow earmark this in your Bible or on your app or whatever you've got. Make sure you know this. And here it is. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 16 says this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Here it is. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. There's the key right there. There's the prayer. And if you would take that little prayer... And have other people take that little prayer. And you would start getting that burden for the lost. And beginning to pray that prayer that the the God of glory 
would give them a spirit of revelation and wisdom and would allow their eyes to be enlightened. I'm telling you, they'll come to Christ because he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And that's the key. That's the secret. That's how we pray. And that's why what we're doing in this church is we've been encouraging for some time and we're going to keep doing it. We're encouraging people to get a list Make a list. And we have these little cards, these little blessed cards, blessed lifestyle cards. And we have five, one, one to five on the back. And you write the name of that person and you put it on your fridge or you put it in your car and you continue to pray for that person. And then I, I know people watching online say, yeah, but I, I don't have one of those cards. You know, this is crazy, but you know, you could, you could create this on your own. You could do it on a, like a napkin with a felt pen. You know, some of you who are really smart could probably remember five names. You wouldn't even have to write them down and you remember to pray for those five people. And I mean, it doesn't have to be five people. It could be three, it could be 10, it could be whatever. But five is a nice, accessible number. I bet every single one of you, how many of you have five people in your life that could really use Christ? How many, anybody? Oh, turns out every single one of you, how about that? And if you would begin to pray for them, things would begin to happen. I want to tell you, we have, we have tons of stories about this. People have been doing this. Uh, this was Bill's story. Bill, Bill decided he was going to pray for five neighbors, five times a week, for five weeks and see what happens. And out of those five people, he had some level of results with four of the five people. And he had, he had uh, the, the biker dude across the lane asked him for prayer one day. The Hispanic couple next door joined their small group. The Chinese couple on the other side of them came to church with them one week. And then the, the, the single mom across the street, she actually came to Christ. Four out of the five people, there was some level of results. And it happened in only, in only five weeks. What would happen if we just continued to do it indefinitely until we saw results? It, it's like the story of Fred. Fred. Fred was born on May 5th, 1955. He married his fifth girlfriend and he bought a five-bedroom house. He had five kids. And he was the fifth vice president of Saks Fifth Avenue. On the fifth day of the week, at five o'clock, he went to the track, and there was a horse, Numero Cinco, running in the fifth race in the fifth lane, and he knew exactly what to do. And he bet $5,000 to win on the horse. And you know what happened? Sure enough, it came in fifth. <laughs> where, where do you think that was going to go? All right, let me, just, let me just close with one final story here today. It's a homegrown story, and I was reminded of it, of it this week. So... So some, probably 25 years ago, we had this family in the church, and they had two boys. I, I'll change their names. I'll call them Brad and Dave. And Brad was the perfect kid, you know. If you've got two boys, one of them is going to be a stinker. It's just, it's just, you know, the odds on it. And so they got this one kid, Brad, and he's just, everything's good, and he's always doing everything right. And, and Dave was such a little rat. And I mean, uh, he used to be in, in Sunday school, and Kathy would come home, and she'd be teaching in Sunday school, and she'd say, oh, if that Dave doesn't have a change in his life, I mean, he is such a rascal, he's going to be a terror as an adult. Well, she wasn't prophesying it, but that's exactly what happened. And uh, Dave grew up, and he got into all kinds of trouble, and eventually he got into drug addiction. And uh, his mom and his father, whom I know, and I've known for years, had never stopped praying for him, never stopped praying for Dave, never stopped praying that, that God would save his soul. And, and life just continued to get worse and worse and worse for him. And then one night they got the call, and it was the police, and, and their son had overdosed, and he was in an ambulance, and they thought he was either dead or might be dead. 
and they didn't think he was going to make it through the night. And, and, and the mother, she told me this the other day, she was, so, she was so grieved, so grieved, and she cried out to the Lord, and she said, Lord, you've promised me. I've been praying for all these years that you are willing that none should perish, but everyone come to repentance. And I've been crying that out for my son. You can't let him die. You can't let him die and go to hell. You can't let him die. Well, he didn't die. And, and, he, re- and he recovered from that. And I hadn't seen Dave for, he's in his 20s now, and I hadn't seen him for 20, 20 years. And he showed up this past Christmas at church, and he went over and he bought my three books, and he came over and he, he introduced himself. He says, do you, do you remember me? And he told me his name, and I hadn't seen him for 20 years. He said, do you remember me? I said, oh, I remember you. You were a rascal. You were like a terror. He said, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> and then he, and he told me his story. That what had happened, and he told me about the overdose, and he says, this is my girlfriend, and I got a job, and I'm off drugs, and, and I've come to Christ, and he says, let me tell you how I came to Christ. He says, I remembered the church of my youth, and I was living in another city, and I tuned into Church of the Rock, and I listened, started listening again, and I decided to give my, Christ, my, my life to Christ, and, and I got saved, and I've turned my life around. And let me, before you misunderstand something, I take zero, absolutely zero credit for that story because that was 100% the results of the prayers of a mother who knew that she had to hold on to her son and she was unprepared to let go because she knew that God was not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's why we begin with prayer. Let's stand together. All right, we just want to take a moment here and ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. Because I know in a room like this, there's people right now that have never made that decision. And you've probably had people praying for you, and that's why you're here. And you don't know Christ, not yet. And, uh, but you're not here by accident. You're here because the Spirit of God has drawn you. And people were praying for you. And uh, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and I'm not going to single anybody out, But if that's you, you know who you are, and you've never known the Lord, and you want to make that right and invite him into your life, or maybe you knew him in the past and you've slipped away, you want to come back. If that's you, I want you to just slip up your hand. Nobody's looking around. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Thank you. There's hands popping up all over the room. Anybody else want to join these folks? Not going to single you out. Not calling you forward. Anybody else want to make this decision? Fantastic. All right. You can all put your hands down. So we're all going to pray and. And if you raised your, didn't raise your hand, but you feel like you should have, then you just pray with us because we're all going to pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for prayer. People have been praying for me. And today my life changes because I confess I've been a sinner and I've been far from God. And you died on the cross for my sin. You rose again on the third day, and you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a Christian, and I'm on my way to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a big shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. 
You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 